Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Um, If we haven't met before, I'm Simon, uh, Associate Vicar here, and we're going to look at Psalm 2 together. There is a handout uh, under the seats in the middle, if you'd like to pass those along the row. You can see where we're going in this psalm. And uh, just as those are going around, let me lead us in prayer to ask for the Lord's help. Father, thank you for this book of songs in the middle of the, the Bible, the Psalms. Thank you so much for all that they reveal to us of you. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and put this song in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What would you say to somebody who came up to you and said, I'm fed up of having to depend on oxygen to stay alive. I'm just fed up with it. I don't want to bother with it anymore. I reckon the more we can get rid of the oxygen in our atmosphere, the better. And then we can show ourselves what we can do without it. Or someone who said, "I I just hate the way gravity keeps us trapped. I just hate the way it holds the earth to the sun. Wouldn't it be better if we could just sort of go off and explore the universe? Scientists should work out a way to, you know, blast the earth away from the sun and then we could have more fun. I hope you'd think you're mad. (laughs) We depend on oxygen. We depend on the sun. We can't live without them. We can't just decide to exist without them. And we want to make sure those people have never got anywhere near scientific policy. Uh, the trouble is, we, we meet people a bit like that at the beginning of Psalm 2. And actually, we'll see as we talk that we meet people like that all the time. And there's something of that in all of us. So have a look at the beginning of Psalm 2. There is, it says, a conspiracy. People are plotting. Verse 2, kings and rulers are rising and getting together, rising up. And what is it that they want to do? Well, at the end of verse 2, they are 
conspiring, plotting, rising up, banding together against the Lord, against his anointed. And here's what they're saying in verse 3. Let's break their chains. Let's throw off their shackles. In other words, let's set ourselves free from God. Let's overthrow God's rule. Having God ruling our lives keeps us trapped and constrained. It's as if he keeps us in chains and shackles, these people are thinking. Well, let's get rid of God. We'll do better without him. We'll finally be free. We'll we'll be able to explore our destiny as humanity, free to reach our potential, no longer held captive by this Lord who wants us to be his. And we need to respond in the same way that we responded to those silly scientific ideas at the beginning. We need to say, that is madness. That is every bit as mad as trying to get rid of oxygen or gravity and thinking that that could possibly go well. Who is the Lord that these people speaking are trying to overthrow? Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 139 verse 13, you God created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Acts 17 25, he gives us life and breath and everything else. Acts 17 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Colossians 1 17, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1, he made the universe and he sustains all things by his powerful word. Actually, we depend on the Lord more than we depend on oxygen and gravity. Without him, there would be no oxygen or gravity. There'd be no us. If you're taking a breath right now, God gave you that. If you're holding together and not disintegrating and disappearing into nothingness, that is because God is sustaining us, holding us together. So let's try to overthrow him. What madness is that? Nothing, when you think about it, could be more crazy, more deluded, more self-destructive. And yet, we see it all through human history. It's the story of the Bible. It's the story of humanity. The temptation in the Garden of Eden. Satan whispering to Eve, you don't really need God. You can ignore him. You can disobey him. You can, um, you can just walk away from him. Nothing bad will happen. Decide for yourself. You decide good and evil. Go off on your own. You see it in kings and rulers uh, like those described in verses 1 and 2 and 3. Think of Herod trying to kill Jesus. Think of the Pharisees and the chief priests who did kill Jesus, desperate to get him out of the way. Think of the the vicious persecution of Christians in a place like uh, North Korea with tens or hundreds of thousands in forced labor camps. Why? Why have so many rulers in Christian history been opposed to the gospel? And God. It's because the regime is paranoid and sees God and his followers as a threat. Actually, look at almost any authoritarian regime in the last 2,000 years. They either tend to hate the church or uh, try to control it. Think of the state controlled churches aligning with government in Russia or China. Uh, Think of Hitler. In public, he said his Nazi policies were founded on Jesus. 
and in private he said Christianity was a blight on human existence. Why? <laughs> Why? That's the question in verse 1. Why do the nations and peoples do that? Try and get rid of God. What is the motivation in trying to do something so mad? Because God is seen as a constraint and a threat. And people want to control our own destiny without God's interference. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve rebelled because Satan whispered that temptation. You can, you can do life on your own without him. Why did the authorities kill Jesus? Well, they were afraid of losing their control. The crowds were going over to him. They were terrified of being dislodged from their place of power. Now, look, it's really easy for us to read those three verses and feel smug and think, yeah, there's bad leaders out there who hate Jesus. Boo hiss. Foolish people trying to overthrow God. I'm glad we're not like them. Except, remember that this is what Adam and Eve did, representing the sin of all of humanity. If you turn to a Bible passage like Romans 1, it makes it really clear that we've all exchanged God for the desires of our hearts. All of us have done that in some way. We sort of pushed him away so that we could worship and serve created things, including ourselves. Uh, verses 1 to 3 might sound as if it's only talking about other people, these foolish kings and rulers, but actually there's something of this in all of us. That's why verse 1 talks about the nations, the peoples, you and me. Now maybe you think, still, hold on a minute, um, is that really true? Are there that many people in the world who would, who would say out loud, I want to I overthrow God? Well, there are plenty of people who are angry with God and want to get rid of him and, and would say that. Um, but there are plenty of people, aren't there, who would say they're spiritual, would say there's a higher power, would say there's a, a God out there somewhere. Isn't it too sort of blunt and black and white to say that we all have this tendency to want to overthrow God? Over the weekend, uh, I had a listen to, to Tim Keller speaking on this passage. I thought that might be a good thing. And it was a classic example of where he is incredibly insightful. So we've got a, a, a little quote from Tim. Runs over a few slides. So let's read this through. Here's what Tim Keller says. The Bible doesn't say people are hostile towards the idea of God. The Bible says people hate the biblical God. People say, I believe in a God of love. But the Bible says we hate the God who is the king, who says all the ends of the earth are my possession, and I own you. That's, that's the God we re reject. So here's a guy who's very religious. Next slide. And he figures the way to avoid Jesus is to be as good and as moral as possible. Why? Many people use religion to avoid Jesus, to avoid the king. Let me put it like this. Do you believe you are a pretty decent person? Do you believe that you are better than most? Do you feel that if God showed up now and he was going to decide who to accept into his heaven, you feel like you'd have as good a chance as anybody? Or do you believe that you have no hope, that you're an absolutely helpless sinner with no chance of being accepted by God except that Jesus died for you? Uh, that you have no hope except for the mercy of God that was shown in Jesus Christ? Friends, don't you see... 
If it's the former, you're using morality to avoid Jesus, to keep from really having to be dependent on him, to keep from really having to submit to him. I tell you this, either through morality and religion or through skepticism and licentiousness, people hate the king. And they express that hatred by trying to avoid the king. Have you seen the hostility towards God in your own life? Only Christians, says Tim Keller, can admit that. Only the Holy Spirit can help us bring that to the surface. The only way to become his friend is to admit that you're his enemy. It really gets under the skin, doesn't it? Do you see what Keller's saying? Our hostility to God can be really subtle. We can give the impression of being very, very friendly towards God. And yet, uh, there are atheist versions of it, there are religious versions of it, there are very churchy, respectable versions of it. But we, there's an instinct in us to resist God. In fact, any time we come across a command in the Bible and choose not to obey it or think we don't like it or, or wish we didn't have to obey it, it's an echo of this hostility towards God in, in a tiny way within us. I want to do things my way, not his way. I want to be captain of my soul, master of my fate. You're not the boss of me now. Why do I play this song so loud? Because I want to, because I want to. Or however you'd express it in your uh, own cultural way. Whenever this resistance to God rears its head, and it will, <laughs> it does for all of us over and over again, Let's recognize it. Let's not pretend it doesn't exist. Let's remember how mad it is when we think, I would do life better, I'd be better off without God. Let's look at the middle section then of, of the psalm. Verses four to nine are all about the unbreakable reign of God's king. Um, just for a second, glimpse back to verse two, which says people are rebelling against the Lord and his anointed Anointed means uh, marked out with oil as, as the, the, the appointed king. Uh, remember the coronation ceremony, King Charles taken into that, that strange little cubicle where we couldn't see it all happening, but uh, anointed with oil. Um, in the Bible, it's the same. Anointed one uh, in the Old Testament is, is the king, but the Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. Throughout the Bible, God promised to send a Messiah, not just a king, but the king, the king of kings. And uh, this Messiah appears before us in these verses, uh, verses four to nine. Um, verse four begins with God laughing, uh, laughing at this rebellion of people. It's not an image that comes up often in scripture, but this is an appropriate laughter because on, on one level, our rebellion against God is so laughable, it's so ridiculous. Ants pushing against a giant. But it gets more uncomfortable in verse 5. It also deserves, verse 5 says, his anger. God rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Now those are not comfortable verses, are they? Uh, remember, never take verses in the Bible in isolation. God is still all of the other things the Bible reveals to us, full of love, compassion, grace, mercy, kindness. Actually, it's God's love and compassion that motivate his anger. Let's try and figure that out. Um, because 
God is jealous in a good way for the world that he loves. Our rejection of him is a deeply, deeply wrong thing. It is guilty, it is selfish, it's hostile, it's immoral, it provokes his wrath. But wrath and anger is is not here the opposite of love. If God was unloving here, he would be indifferent. If God didn't love the world, he would have given up on it. If God didn't love us, he could have easily just left the world to its fate or just swiped us out of existence. That would have been so easy. But God didn't give up on the world despite all of our hostility towards him. What he does in these verses is set out to reclaim the world for himself, to take us back. In Tim Keller's sermon on this psalm, he talks all about uh, the stories that we tell as human beings. And so many of them are about a great king. Have you noticed there's loads of stories about a great king under whom everything is wonderful, who then is, is away. And things go bad with the king away. But then the king will return and put everything right. King Arthur, whose legendary grave calls him the once and future king. Robin Hood, who helped people in terrible times while Richard the Lionheart was away, and then he came back. So many stories about how things went wrong in the absence of of a great king, and how his arrival will make everything well. So here is God declaring the arrival of his king in verse 6. I have installed my king in Zion, my holy mountain. Zion was the, the hill at Jerusalem. So look to Jerusalem. Who was installed in Jerusalem as king? Uh, Well, many kings from David onwards installed in Jerusalem. But there was one great and final king, Jesus himself, the Messiah, the king of kings. And the way God will reclaim his world that has rejected him is by installing Jesus as king. And we see a conversation in verses 7 to 9 between God the Father and Jesus, his anointed king. God says to Jesus, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Those are hard words. But remember, we've got to put those together with everything else that we know about Jesus. None of this undermines or undoes his love and grace and compassion. In fact, in a way, it demonstrates it. Um, You see the beautiful relationship between Jesus and his father in verse 7. Needs a little bit of explanation. Uh, Just to explain verse 7, which says, uh, Today, uh, God has become Jesus' father. We know from elsewhere in the Bible... Uh, that Jesus is eternal. He hasn't come into existence at any point in time. We can say God has always been Father and Son and Spirit, uh, outside time, outside space. But there is something new uh, given to Jesus here. Um, The Son of God, Jesus, has entered time and space, become one of us, and he's become a human king. And when the Israelite kings like David did that, uh, God began to call them his son. And that's what's happening to Jesus here. The eternal son of God is becoming a a human son of God, the king that God has appointed. So in Jesus, what do we have? What do we finally have? 
we finally have a human king who has never, ever, not in the tiniest way, turned against God, never rebelled against God. He's never wanted to overthrow the rule of God. He has a perfect, intimate relationship with the Father. And it's one that we can come to share in. Because, as verse 8 says, God will make the nations his inheritance. The ends of the earth his possession. We have the opportunity to become like Jesus. With Jesus. In relationship with God the Father. This is a, a fantastic, beautiful picture. Everything being put right. The nations, the ends of the earth being brought back under God's rule. Once again, fully belonging to him, as we should. It's like those great moments at the end of uh, blockbuster films. You know when you get to uh, the end of Lord of the Rings, uh, the end of the return of the king, as Aragorn is enthroned as the king, and the realms of the men and the elves elves and the dwarves and the hobbits all celebrate together. Or the end of um, the original uh, Star Wars films, in the return of the Jedi, as creatures from all over the galaxy rejoice uh, together to celebrate. And, And God has appointed Jesus as king to bring about that kind of thing, even greater. But that can't happen without the defeat of the enemies. The ones who have refused to come back to him all the way to the end. Aragorn can't be enthroned until Sauron and Saruman are defeated. The Jedi can't win until Emperor Palpatine and Darth Vader are brought down. And you often find in fantasy stories like that, that they can't help but echo the real story of the universe. Jesus will reign. He will. But the enemies who refuse to stop this mad, ridiculous, laughable, evil rebellion, if they keep holding out, will need that rebellion to be put down and crushed. So verse 9, you'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. But if that only sounds like bad news in your head, well, maybe think of the destruction of the Death Star. Maybe think of the collapse of Sauron's tower and the celebrations that resulted from that. We often read the Bible and uh, read passages about God's wrath and anger and recoil, and we think, well, this is just bad news. I don't like this. I don't want to read this. I'm going to go and read something that's nicer. But it's God's love for the world that causes him to destroy what is evil. When oppressive and abusive powers are brought down in this world, there is rejoicing. I think we can see a picture of those crowds after World War II out celebrating uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of cities up and down the country. Come on, there we go. We've got a fantastic, look at that celebration of the end of World War II. When you see passages about God destroying his enemies, don't just instinctively think this is bad news. In the end, it is brilliant news for the universe. It means liberation from everything that is evil. That is why Jesus came to be installed as king, to bring us back to God, to make us his once more, to destroy the powers that oppress and pull pull us away from God. Isn't that good news? That's good news. So as we get to the last part of the psalm, 
how should we respond to all of this? Well, be wise. That is what verse 10 says. Um, Verse 10 to 12, finish with the wisdom of finding blessing in him. Verse 10, here is the message to those kings and rulers of the earth in rebellion against God. Be wise, be warned. Resisting God's rule can only end in disaster. Verse 12 says, if we keep doing that, our, our way will lead to destruction. As I said, that's, that's good news for the world. Anti-God regimes torn down, oppression destroyed. But we need to come back to God. We need to make sure we're not pulling away from God. And that destruction could happen at any time. Verse 12, God's wrath can flare up in a moment, it says. Now, again, please don't take that out of context. That sounds really uncomfortable if we think uh, it means God has a short temper and might lose control. That's not what it's saying. The Bible over and over again says God is patient, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God doesn't... um, Uh, react uh, like that but when God decides the time is right he will bring the rebellion of humanity to an end those kings and rulers and any of us who who still want to hold out and push him out of our lives and out of the universe think of the rulers over history who thought they were secure but then God brought them down Nebuchadnezzar taken into madness until He looked back to God. Belshazzar, feasting until the invading Persians took him out. If trying to overthrow God is madness, coming back to him is wisdom and refuge and freedom in these verses. Kings are urged in verse 11 to serve the Lord with fear, to celebrate his rule. Celebrate, like that great crowd. Celebrate his rule with trembling. In verse 12, we're urged to kiss the son. It's a picture of acknowledging his rule, bowing gratefully and humbly before him as the king of kings. If we have any power in this world, we're not kings and rulers here, but we might be parents or bosses or wield influence in some other way, we need to humbly recognize Jesus' kingship, the king of kings. Because he is the king who truly, truly loves us. He loved the world so much that he came to die for us, to die for our sins, die for our our hostility against him. So that, in verse 12, we can find refuge in him. There is no refuge away from Jesus, just like there's no life away from oxygen or gravity. But there is refuge and life and grace and love in him. And that, as we get to the end of the first two psalms, is, is how to be blessed. Psalm 1 started with the phrase, blessed is the person who dot, dot, dot. And Psalm 2 gives us the final word. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Jesus. Look at your life and don't be mad. Don't try to overthrow God. Look at the king, the king of kings, who has come to make you his again, to bring you back out of rebellion find safety, find protection, find love in him. Let's pray. Father, where there is the insanity of rebellion against you in our lives and in our hearts, please help us. Please pour out your grace and bring us back. Father, if we are here this morning... uh, 
thinking about Christian things but not sure what we make of Jesus yet, please, Lord, would you grant us a vision of him, the truth about him in our hearts that we might respond and come to the the refuge and forgiveness and and love that he offers. And Father, as Christians, as, as we time after time once more see little bits of sin, little bits of rebellion in our hearts, pray, Lord, that you would help us to come back to you, find more grace from you, seek refuge in you. And thank you so much that in Jesus we have that safety, that love, that welcome. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.